0: Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T hope you guys are all doing great let me just ask that after listening to or watching the video if you find you enjoyed it or learned something do me a favor smash the like button consider subscribing and if you want to help support the channel please consider a membership or a patreon subscription now let's dig in november phoenix arizona Unlike other parts of the United States, Phoenix in November means the perfect weather for hiking a mountain, walking along a desert trail, or riding a bike along one of the city's many canals, even at night. The canals, which date back to 250 AD, when the Hohokum people ruled the land, were dug out by hand and connected to the Salt and Gila rivers. The canals provided irrigation for the Hohokam's crops, allowing them to farm in the arid desert. Today, the canals are carved in concrete, and they continue to deliver irrigation and drinking water to the metro Phoenix area. They run for miles and miles and make for the perfect hiking, biking, and running trails. But back in the early 1990s, the canal suddenly took on a more sinister meaning, leading many to never again venture out on them. And it would take more than 20 years to track down the man who overnight turned the canals into his personal hunting ground. This is the case of the canal murders and the zombie hunter, brought to you by Bed Crime Stories Podcast. It's Sunday, November 8th, 1992, around 7 p.m. The temperature in Phoenix is around 65 degrees Fahrenheit, ideal for an evening bike ride along the canals. 21-year-old Angela Broso lives with her boyfriend, Joe in an apartment near Cactus Road and Interstate 17. Normally, Angela and Joe head out for their bike rides together, but tomorrow is Angela's 22nd birthday. And Joe, being the doting boyfriend that he is, is busy making Angela a birthday cake. Angela, who's biked the canals many times, has no qualms about heading out for a solo bike ride on this evening. There are usually other people along the canals at the same time going for their nightly exercise. But of course, that doesn't mean you can't find yourself alone for certain stretches. But no worries, Phoenix. While not as safe as a small town, isn't exactly L. A. or New York City when it comes to crime. An hour passes. The cake is out of the oven and cooling, but Angela hasn't returned. Joe begins to worry. He and Angela watch the TV show in living color together every Sunday at 8 p.m. without fail. For Angela. To not be back in time for the show is highly unusual. Joe goes out on his bike looking for her. He goes out three separate times and cannot find her. Finally, he calls the police. It ends up being for Joe what the French call une nuit blanche, a white night, which means he doesn't sleep a wink. The next morning, Joe gets the absolute worst news imaginable. Police searching for Angela found bloody drag marks along the canal. Following the drag marks up a slight incline, they discovered Angela's body lying in a field just east of the apartment where she and Joe live. Her body is naked except for her tennis shoes, and someone has inflicted the worst possible injuries. Her body has been nearly severed in two, and worst of all, her head is missing. All this while Joe was baking her a cake. Whoever did this cut with a surgeon's precision. So instead of celebrating Angela's birthday, Joe finds himself having to call her parents with the horrendous news. A forensic examination later finds evidence that Angela was essayed. It is also determined that her cause of death is from a wound to her back from a sharp object that pierced her lung and aorta. Eleven days later, Angela's perfectly preserved head is discovered a mile and a half away, floating in the Arizona Canal, where it flows past a shopping center. Her head looks as if it has been preserved in a cool place. There are no signs of decomposition. Angela's family and the city of Phoenix have a hard time processing this news. What kind of evil monster is lurking along the Phoenix canals? To commit a crime of this ilk, you have to be a pretty sick puppy. And whoever it is, is still out there hiding in the shadows and trawling for victims along the canals. The once vibrant canal system becomes desolate. Some people never go back to the canals. Ten months go by, and a nervous Phoenix tries to go back to normal. It's now September 7th of 1993, and 17-year-old Melanie Burnus, a junior at Arcadia High School, has stayed home from school. She's not feeling well. That evening, her mother Marlene has plans for dinner out. It's 7 p.m. and Melanie is sitting on the living room couch watching TV, seeing that her daughter is feeling better. Marlene kisses Melanie, tells her she loves her says goodbye, and says she'll be back in about two hours. When Marlene gets home, Melanie is no longer on the couch. She's also not in her bedroom and not anywhere in the house. Marlene checks the garage and finds that Melanie's bike is missing. Melanie isn't allowed to cycle on the canals at night, but she sometimes rides there with her friends during the day. Marlene calls the hospital to see if Melanie had an accident and is a patient there. Then she calls the police. The next morning, a cyclist named Charlotte Pottle is taking a bike ride with her sister and their young children along the Arizona Canal. Pottle notices something odd on the ground. It looks like a large puddle of water, except it's red, and it's right by the I-17 underpass near Castles and Coasters, a small amusement park. The location is close to where Angela Brasso's head was recovered 10 months earlier. Pottle dials 911. Drag marks lead searchers to where Melanie's body has been moved and then pushed into the canal. The body, which drifted about 12 feet before getting tangled in brush, is at the bottom of the canal. Most of Melanie's clothes have been removed, It appeared that whoever attacked her must have come up behind her and ambushed her while she was on her bike. The same MO as whoever attacked Angela Broso. A closer look reveals that Melanie, like Angela, suffered a wound to her back from a sharp object that pierced her lung and aorta. She has also been essayed and has a shallow cut to her neck. And shockingly, the letters WSC are carved into her chest along with what appears to be a cross. There is nothing holy about this scene. If only Melanie had followed her mother's wishes and stayed home on the couch. But it's too late for the what-ifs. As two families find themselves drowning in grief and horror and Phoenix is paralyzed with fear, the cops realize that they're dealing with a serial sexual sadist. Now you'd think someone committing this type of crime would get caught fairly soon, but that's not what happened. In fact, it would take more than two decades for the investigators to finally identify the perpetrator. By the time the cops caught up to him, he had a new persona and he was hiding in plain sight. His name is Brian Patrick Miller and in 2014 he was known to many... In the Phoenix area, including the cops, as the Zombie Hunter, a comic book inspired character who wore goggles, a menacing mask, and a long trench coat and carried a large fake Gatling gun. He even drove around town in a tricked out old Crown Victoria police car that had faux blood, at least I hope it was faux blood, trickling down the doors and the words zombie hunter on the back. There was also a ghoulish mannequin in the back seat behind bars. This is the stuff of nightmares. And this was not just for Halloween. This was like a year-round thing for this guy. Creeps me out so bad. Miller attended events and took photos with fans and with the police. They say real life is often stranger than fiction, and this bedcrime story proves that to be true. A combination of genetic genealogy, DNA, and other evidence allowed the authorities to finally identify Miller as the person responsible for Brasso and Bernice's deaths. Long before Miller harmed Angela Brasso and Melanie Burnus, he hurt another young woman. It was May of 1989, and a young female named Celeste Bentley got off a bus at the same stop as the then 16-year- old Brian Miller. She was on her way to work at a department store. Miller suddenly ran past Celeste and when he did so, he hit her in the back. At least that's what Celeste thought. But when she reached back to her back and pulled her hand away, she saw that it was covered in blood miller had used a sharp object to jab celeste in the upper back this would turn out to be his modus operandi for all his crimes in celeste's case miller angled the sharp object in such a way that he thankfully missed her spine and didn't puncture any vital organs. The doctor who examined Celeste said she was lucky to be alive. Had that object been placed a little to the left or a little to the right, she either would have been paralyzed or dead. Miller was caught and charged with aggravated assault. He was then sent to a juvenile detention center where he stayed until he turned 18. He was released in the summer of 1990. While Miller was in the juvenile detention center, his mother, Ellen, made a strange discovery at home. While cleaning his room, she found a disturbing note. The note with the heading plan on the second page detailed a scheme to harm and ultimately do in a young woman. Ellen gave the note to the cops and refused to let her son return home. He thus had to move into a halfway house. It would be two years after that that Miller harmed Angela Broso in 1992, and 10 months after that, in 1993, that he harmed Melanie Burness. Both times, he managed to evade the authorities. Four years later, Miller got married in 1997, had a daughter, and moved to Everett, Washington. Then, five years later, in 2002, Miller finds himself charged with jabbing a young woman in an unprovoked attack. The woman said that Miller offered her a ride and a phone to make a call on Then he approached her with a 12-inch long sharp object. He used that object on her back multiple times, leaving her with injuries that required 30 stitches. Miller denied the allegation, and he told his lawyer that the woman had tried to rob him using the threat of a sharp object. That's what you call projection, people. But believe it or not, Miller was acquitted in this case, and that's what you call someone falling through the cracks in the system and the system not working. In 2005, Miller and his wife separated. She probably realized what an utter nut job she was married to. His wife would later tell the cops that Miller told her about the fatal jabbing of a person he identified as an intellectually challenged Girl Scout who appeared to be in her mid-teens. Guys, I remember going out with my buddy in our brownie uniforms selling cookies without our parents. This crime occurred after he was released from the juvenile detention center back in 1990 and when he was living in an apartment complex operated by a Mennonite outreach program north of Central Phoenix. When the girl knocked on Miller's door, he grabbed her, pulled her inside, and used a sharp object to inflict a fatal wound on her neck. He then put her in the bathtub, where he intended to preserve her with cold water, but he mistakenly ran the hot water. He then took her body apart with a sharp object and placed all the bits in a trash can. Guys, I hope the other prisoners get their hands on this P.O.S. He's definitely got it coming. Sorry, not sorry. The cops believe that this young girl was Brandy Myers, who went missing in 1992. Her body has never been found. While the cops believe Brandy was done in by Miller, They haven't yet been able to prove it. It wasn't until 2015 that Miller was finally on the police's radar for the deaths of Angela Brasso and Melanie Bernas. Think about how long this dangerous guy was loose and running around with a sharp object, harming young women. I have to believe they could have found him sooner. When Miller's photo appeared in the newspaper in 2015, a woman in Washington state saw his face and told the authorities that, when she was fourteen miller had injured her with a sharp object while she was walking on a trail in everett he'd come up behind her and use that sharp object on her back she was incredibly lucky to survive the attack so miller once again showed a very specific modus operandi he attacked young women who were alone on nature trails. He came up behind them. He ambushed them. And then he plunged a sharp object into their backs multiple times. He also essayed them. A combination of genetic genealogy, DNA, and other evidence finally proved Miller's undoing. A cold case detective named Clark Schwartzkopf was working on the case and had arranged to meet a person of interest at a Chili's restaurant in Phoenix. Oh my gosh, I've probably been to that restaurant. Who knew that Chili's would play a role in a case? The idea was to get the possible suspect's DNA so that forensic investigators could determine if it matched DNA found on the bodies of Angela Broso and Melanie Burness. It was January 15th of 2015 and the person of interest was Brian Patrick Miller. The detective knew that Miller was something of a local celebrity because of his zombie hunter costume and weirdo car. Miller drove the creepy car to the Chili's, which definitely caught the detective's attention. By now, Miller was 42 years old, divorced, and raising his daughter alone. He worked at an Amazon warehouse. Sounds like an all-American dad, right? Miller even brought his teenage daughter along to Chili's. The detective said he had a good rapport with the daughter. The detective had arranged to be seated in a quiet part of the restaurant and undercover detectives watched workers take the silverware and plates out of the dishwasher and then detectives placed them on the table to ensure they would not be contaminated. Miller ordered a burger and a glass of water. Schwarzkopf said, quote, he swallows his hamburger in like five bites. Wouldn't take a drink of water. And I'm sitting there going, are you sure you don't want something else to drink? you just got water. No, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. End quote. But then, to Schwarzkopf's relief, Miller finally takes a sip of water. As soon as Miller walked out of the restaurant, undercover detectives secured the glass of water. Miller even gave the detective, Schwarzkopf, a tour of his car. 11 days later, the head of the forensic lab visited Schwarzkopf and told him, it's him, Brian Miller, it's him. Finally, the cops had the canal killer. Miller was charged with kidnapping, first degree murder, an attempted essay in relation to both Broso and Bernas. Miller pleaded not guilty for reasons of insanity. He was then subjected to a six month bench trial. This was a death penalty case as well. Now a bench trial is a trial without a jury. Sometimes courts and counsel prefer bench trials because they're more efficient and easier to navigate than jury trials. This is because the judge acts as the finder of facts and then rules on matters of law and procedure. This keeps the trial short and cuts way down on legal costs. The judge is the person who decides guilt or innocence in a bench trial. Now Miller's attorneys argued that he was in the grip of a disassociative trauma state when he did in Angela Broso and Melanie Burnus, and thus was unable to comprehend his actions. The trial was dominated by accounts of Miller's childhood his father had died when he was young, and his mother had allegedly been abusive to him. In the end, the judge found Miller guilty of all charges, and she sentenced him to death. He currently sits on death row in an Arizona prison, and he still denies harming Angela Broso and Melanie Burnus. To this day, no one except Brian Miller Knows what WSC stands for. Remember, those letters were carved in Melanie Burness' chest. I, for one, am very glad that this guy is in prison. And as I said earlier, I hope he gets what he has coming to him for all the abuses he inflicted on these young women, how he took their lives, how he forever changed their families and for how he terrorized the Phoenix area. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories.